From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. In the early 1920s, Black Americans were under the siege of direct and indirect racial violence, with widespread lynchings, Jim Crow laws, and race riots across the country. And yet, the Greenwood neighborhood of Tulsa, Oklahoma, was thriving. Its streets were lined with successful Black-owned businesses and Black professionals. The businesses were so successful, the area was dubbed Black Wall Street. But 100 years ago today, on May 31, 1921, a white mob of several thousand murdered up to 300 Black residents and destroyed almost every Black business, church, and home in the 35-square-block neighborhood. What followed the massacre was a national forgetting. No reckoning, no justice, and no accountability. Black property owners were never compensated, and neither the city nor the state committed money towards rebuilding Greenwood in the aftermath. In fact, up until recently, the massacre was hardly taught or discussed at all. Joining us on the centennial to talk about the Tulsa Race Massacre and its legacy is Tulsa historian and prolific author and lawyer, Hannibal B. Johnson. Hannibal, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. To start, I think it's helpful to have a better sense of what the Greenwood district was like before the massacre. Can you transport us to the neighborhood and to some of its most prominent figures just to lay that groundwork? The Greenwood district is the historic Black community in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So it's part of the city of Tulsa. This was an era of Jim Crow segregation. So the Black community sat just north of the Frisco tracks in or near downtown Tulsa. And it was a business district, as you noted, fondly dubbed, ultimately, Black Wall Street. Black Wall Street, for me, is a misnomer. You would be in the Greenwood District, let's say, 1920, 1921, early on, and you could find movie theaters and dance halls and pool halls, barbershops, beauty salons, restaurants, grocery stores, haberdasheries, cleaners, confectionaries, hotels, rooming houses, jitney services, and on and on and on. You could also rely on the service of doctors and lawyers and accountants and dentists. So it was the kind of Main Street community that one might find anywhere in America, but it's unique as was because this was an era of rigid segregation. So the fact that these Black folks were all concentrated in this area, supporting one another, circulating and recirculating and recirculating dollars in this narrow geographic community to undergird and support the financial fortunes of the community was truly remarkable. Tulsa, Greenwood, Black Wall Street was quite literally the talk of the nation. So it was an anomaly in many ways. This was not common in this period of America. Absolutely. So it was, for Black folks, an example. It was something aspirational. Booker T. Washington visited Tulsa, and Booker T. at the time was talking about this notion that if we as Black folks could demonstrate our industriousness, our competence at business, our ability to self-govern, 
then racism might well abate and white people might well accept us as co-equals. Now, that seems rather fanciful looking back, but at the time, you can understand how that might resonate with some people. Didn't quite pan out that way. No. So what actually happened? Because, in fact, it seems like the reverse happened, that white people in the community were actually jealous of this prosperity. So a number of things happened. So there's confluence of factors that led to the massacre in 1921. But I think the thing that you're pointing to is something that I would refer to with a psychological designation, cognitive dissonance. So if you realize that the ascendant racial philosophy of the day was white supremacy, that's without question. If you subscribe to a white supremacist mindset, and if you're living in Tulsa in 1921, on the south side of the Frisco tracks near downtown, and you're looking over to the north side of the Frisco tracks, and you're seeing these people who are inferior, subordinate to you in your mind, but they are living in homes that they own. They're driving cars. They're wearing nice clothes. They're going to restaurants in their own community. Then something is amiss, askew, and awry. And so you need, as a white person who subscribes to white supremacy, you need to harmonize what you believe ought to be true and what you're actually observing on the ground. And one way you might do that is through violence. And there was a reason that people believed it ought to be that way. I mean, the general environment across the country was one of a peak of racial violence with the lynchings, with segregationist black codes. Can you say more about the sort of larger environment that was influencing this microcosm? Historians and sociologists often use the phrase the nadir of race relations in America to describe the early part of the 20th century. That's a great phrase, I think. The low point of race relations in America, just for the reasons you cite. There are these events occurring all throughout the United States called race riots. They are largely assaults on black communities. In 1919, just two years prior to the Tulsa outbreak, there are more than two dozen so-called race riots. The other thing that's happened simultaneously is lynching. Lynching is simply a form of domestic terrorism. It's an implementation tool for white supremacy. The point of lynching has something, but not everything, to do with the victim. It has more to do with the group from which the victim is drawn and reinforcing in their minds that white is absolutely supreme and that you should have fear in your hearts and minds of the consequences of stepping outside your bounds. Hannibal, I'm wondering if I could back up a little bit and ask you, for those who don't know what the actual event was, can you take us back to that day on May 31st, 1921, and tell us what lit the match on what I'm understanding is a tinderbox in Tulsa? Yeah, so Tulsa was a tinderbox. We need a catalyst. We need an igniter. We need a match to throw on the smoldering embers. And that occurs on May 30th, 1921, which is Memorial Day. It involves two teenagers, Dick Rowland, 19 years old, black boy who shines shoes downtown for a living, Sarah Page, white girl, 17 years old, who runs an elevator manually in the Drexel building downtown. Dick Rowland, knowing that restrooms are largely unavailable to black folks downtown, he figures there's, well, there's a restroom in the Drexel building, I'll go over there. He goes to the Drexel building, boards the elevator. Something happened on the elevator we don't know that may have caused it to jerk or to lurch, and Dick Rowland bumped into, stepped on the foot of, or brushed up against Sarah Page. In any event, she overreacted. She began screaming. 
The elevator landed back in the lobby. Dick Rowan, frightened, ran from the elevator. Sarah Page, distraught, exited the elevator. She was comforted by a locally owned store clerk. A store clerk from a locally owned store is what I mean. She told him her story of being assaulted on the elevator, which was really not true. And she would ultimately recant the original story. Now, he was concerned. You might be concerned. A young woman screaming in a public building says she's been assaulted. He called the police. The police ultimately arrested the boy, Dick Rowland, put him in jail. Jail set atop the courthouse. Meanwhile, that could have been the end of the story had it not been for the intervention of the Tulsa Tribune which the next day, May 31st, 1921, published a story about it. The story was entitled, Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in an Elevator. So the caption of the story really telegraphs the content, and the content is a false narrative of an attempted rape in broad daylight in a public building in downtown Tulsa. The story goes out of its way to make the girl, Sarah Page, look virtuous, and as a corollary, make the boy, Dick Rowland, look villainous. A white mob begins to gather on the lawn of the courthouse, and there's lynch talk. Talk of seizing the boy from the jail, taking him out to a public place, and lynching him. And it's definitely a triggering narrative. I mean, the great taboo is the black male, white female. And the white supremacist notion is that the ultimate aim of black males is to despoil white female innocence. I mean, that whole narrative is part of the white supremacist mantra. And they knew that. They knew that at the time. Right. And so they knew that the article would have the effect it had, which was to rile up thousands of white men. Black men get word of this. They want to protect Dick Rowland from lynching because they know that lynching is certainly a possibility. Lynching is happening all over the country. There had been a public lynching of a white boy really just nine months earlier, a guy named Roy Belton, who had been accused of murdering a taxicab driver. He probably did do it, but he didn't get his day in court. He was seized by a mob with complicity of law enforcement, taken out to a public space near Tulsa and hanged. There were hundreds of people who witnessed the hanging, including law enforcement officers. And according to eyewitnesses, people fought over scraps of his clothing because they wanted souvenirs. That was not uncommon at the time either. Right. So you could understand why the black community would be really, really concerned for the safety of Dick Rowland. Right. So some of these men were World War I veterans. World War I had just ended. They knew how to use weapons. So several dozen black men marched down to the courthouse to protect Dick Rowland. He was in jail on top of the courthouse. Conflict ensued. Words exchanged between the large white group, small black group. White man comes over, tries to take a gun from a black man. The gun discharges. And I'll use the words of a survivor who said, all hell broke loose after that. So the violence lasted roughly 16 hours, quelled by a unit of the National Guard that came in from Oklahoma City. A black man, as I mentioned earlier, put up a vigorous, albeit short-lived, defense of the Greenwood community. They were overrun. They were outnumbered, outgunned. The large white mob spilled over the Frisco tracks into the Greenwood community, shooting and looting and burning, destroying everything in sight, murdering people. Many of the people in the mob, the white mob, were deputized by local law enforcement officers. And members of the mob affirmatively prevented the Tulsa Fire Department from extinguishing the fires, which allowed things to burn out of control. Planes flew over the Greenwood community during the chaos. These were private planes. Uh, the official uh, rendition of facts suggests that the planes were reconnoitering. They were looking to see what was going on on the ground. The evidence indicates that the planes were both strafing the community with bullets 
and dropping some sort of incendiary devices on the community. These might have been kerosene or turpentine balls. The planes were from the community or they were from outside? We had a commission formed in 1997, issued a report in 2001. One of the things they looked at was whether planes were used in this violence. And they concluded, because part of what people wanted to know is if the government was complicit in this yes, use of Yes, that's what I was yeah, curious the, the about. Answer, their answer was no, that these are private okay. planes. There are a number of credible eyewitnesses who talked about planes and talked about seeing the bombs being dropped. So that's almost certainly true. When the dust settled, we know that probably a range of 100 to 300 people were killed, most of them black. Not all of them, but most of them were black. We don't know the exact number. We'll never know for a number of reasons. One is poor record keeping. The second is we know the number of people were gravely injured and left town and certainly died elsewhere. At least 1,250 homes in the black community were destroyed, as were a number of commercial and business establishments. Uh, Some black families were interned, very much like people of Japanese ancestry were interned during World War II. They were rounded up, taken to these internment centers, and typically had to get, have a green card countersigned by a white person who would agree to vouch for them to get them out of these detention or internment centers. And then we also know that the Red Cross provided really great relief in terms of in the immediate post-massacre period, health care, food, shelter, clothing, etc. Red Cross was called Angels of Mercy, both by people in the black community and people in the white community. And we know that a couple of downtown churches that still exist did a yeoman's job in providing post-massacre relief. First Presbyterian Church and Holy Family Cathedral. Hannibal, one thing that I feel like when we're talking about this that can just feel hard to connect to is what it was actually like, the terror that one felt, what it was actually like to live through this. I actually was looking at some of the oral histories that were gathered about a decade ago, and I was wondering if I could play you back one clip and just have you respond to it a little bit. It is a clip from George Monroe, who was five years old at the time. Um, I and knew, just for our audience. And I knew him. Yeah. Uh, so and he has a great story. Yes, he does. Oh, amazing. The clip that I'm going to play has some clicking sounds for our audience. That's because pictures were being taken at the same time that the recording was happening. My mother was with her family, four children, two boys and two girls. All of us were in the house. When we saw coming up the walk in the front of the house off of Eastern Street, four men with torches in their hands. These torches were burning. When my mother saw them coming, she says, you get up under the bed, get up under the bed, get up under the bed. And all four of us got up under the bed. I was the last one in my Sister grabbed me and pulled me under there. And while I was under the bed, one of the guys coming past the bed stepped on my finger. And I was, as I was about to scream, my sister put her hand over my mouth so I couldn't be heard. Now, I remember that. Can you tell us what you hear in this account and... Were there other accounts that have also stuck with you over the years? Yeah, that certainly is one of them. And I can tell you, I don't necessarily usually recommend fiction, but the imagination of this event that was done by Watchmen, just the, that short three or four minute segment is 
spot on in my mind. It's exactly what I imagine the term would have been like and what it must have felt like to be in the moment. I think that's just a superb, again, reimagining of that terror. And I think if George were here, George Monroe, he would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I think also, you know, a lot of the oral histories seem to be from children or people who were children at the time because that's who was still alive. You know, and it strikes me that that is something you carry with you for the rest of your life, that those impressions go so deep. So, you know, I want to keep that in mind as we transition into what recovery looked like. What, so May 30th, May 31st, you wake up burning what happens next? What does recovery look like? Most people stayed. Some people did, of course, leave, but most people stayed. And the leadership of the city made some promises that were unkept. The mayor, T.D. Evans, the city commission and the chamber, they immediately began victim blaming. It's referred to in print as a Negro uprising. Forget about riot. Forget about massacre. It's a Negro uprising. And the Tulsa Tribune, the daily afternoon paper that I mentioned earlier, published an article on June 4th, which is three days after the end of the massacre. And it was entitled, It Must Not Be Again. And one would would think, or one may think, that the substance of the article is, wow, we had this incredible calamity in our community. We can't ever let that happen again. What have we come to? But that's not what the article was about. It must not be again. First sentence. Such a district as the old nigger town must never be allowed in Tulsa again. Second sentence. It was a cesspool of iniquity and corruption. And it's a much longer editorial. So I share that with everybody. I don't sanitize it because it's vile. And we need to know that. And it also is a testament to what I think is most important, which is this is a story about the indomitable human spirit of these black people who created something remarkable, sustained it over time, rejuvenated it after its destruction, and it's still with us. So that indomitable human spirit is what's really important. When I've heard you talk about the recovery and the massacre as a whole, I hear you often make a very strong point about the indomitable spirit over a sort of victim narrative. I'm curious if that was a very intentional decision that you were always going to make sure that whenever you talk about this, that you raise up the spirit. That's what's most important to me. That's what stands out to me. I would probably be characterized as an optimist generally, but I'm also a realist. So I don't like to sugarcoat stuff. So you notice when I'm talking about the Tulsa Tribune article, I'm not going to say such a district as the old in town must never be lit. No, that's not what they said. I want to say what they said. But I also want to elevate the positive elements of this story, which I think are the most important elements of the story, and emphasize that part of the story is universal. I'm also curious, as a historian, you and others are calling attention to a very real violent chapter in our history, but you've also called attention to the violence of forgetting, the fact that for a long time we didn't talk about this event. Do you have a sense of how this forgetting happened, both in the white community and in the black community? Yes. I think and also what its effect was. Its effect is the state of race relations that we find ourselves in right now. Uh, part of what happens when you don't 
address your wound is it festers. And so the problem is exacerbated by your failure to tend to it. So at the time of the massacre, there were, I think, a complex web of psychological dynamics that were going on. Tulsa was on an upward trajectory, becoming the oil capital of the world. The city fathers, and I use the phrase city fathers intentionally because these were white men who were the leaders of the community. They wanted Tulsa to be perceived as a cosmopolitan city. It was on an upward trajectory, attracting the rich and famous, and they wanted that to continue. So they felt this unfortunate incident in 1921 is not really helpful to promoting and boosting our city. So let's just kind of sweep that under the rug and move forward. That's in the white community. In some sectors of the white community, and you can see it in newspaper articles and so forth, there was some shame. White people who felt, how could we have let this happen in our community? It's terrific. It's terrible. It's awful. And for that reason, they didn't want to talk about it either. They wanted to forget about it. In the black community, there was arguably what I would call post-traumatic stress disorder, even though I'm not sure the term was coined then, but it describes what was going on. Anxiety and fear. Fear that this happened once, it could happen again. This kind of violence did happen again later on in so-called race riots like Rosewood, Florida, 1923. So it could happen again. Some of the survivors talked about not wanting to burden their children with this historical horror because they felt it might have a stunting or a stultifying impact on their ability to grow and become successful. So they didn't want to bring it up to their kids. Another interesting piece that really struck me as I was reading about the Tulsa Race Massacre, as we're talking about a sort of national forgetting, was just how many elements are still active today that happened back then, and the effect of not having had a more complete reckoning with this and with so many events. But just thinking through some of the list, like the role of the media, the role of law enforcement, racism in law enforcement is definitely something that we are still tackling today. Even the idea, you had mentioned the internment of people in the Black community, detention without due process is definitely something that we are still facing today. And and it really struck me that this one event has so many pieces that are absolutely still playing out right now and sort of uniquely in that way. So as we shift into understanding how not to keep repeating events like this in all their various elements, can you talk about what the process of recovery and reconciliation looks like? For me, the process involves an alliterative formulation of acknowledgement, apology, and atonement. So acknowledgement has to do with many things that we're doing right now, which is working on curriculum. We created about three years ago a teacher's institute so teachers can come together, give them the tools they need to be able to teach it and be excited about teaching it. We're building right now Greenwood Rising, which is a world-class history center on Greenwood and Archer. And the idea is that it's a place where people can come and learn the history in an experiential, immersive way with the goal of leveraging the history from Tulsa and taking or gleaning its lessons such that we can confront the challenges that are present today. So in our final gallery in Greenwood Rising, we are going to challenge patrons to think about Black Lives Matter mass incarceration, black community police relations, 
educational deficits, healthcare disparities, and all those other things that we know are race-based that are challenges that we face. So really the upshot is we want to make sure that people understand there's a through line from the past and our history to the present and where we are today. And there are things that we can glean from the past that should inform us in the present and for the future. Apology has to do with both literal apologies and creating ways for people to enhance compassion and empathy. So in terms of literal apologies, our former police chief, Chuck Jordan, in 2012, I believe it was, issued a public apology at John Hope Franklin Reconciliation Park for the dereliction of duty on behalf of the Tulsa Police Department back in 1921. That's significant. I mean, that makes a difference. How was that received? Well, <laughs> that's an acknowledgement of what happened and an apology from the person who now leads that organization. And part of what he said was, this is definitely not who we are now, but we did this back in 1921 and it was wrong. That's important. If you're talking about building bonds of trust, that ownership and apology makes a big difference. Can apology also look like reparations to those who are survivors in whose families were affected? Yes. When I talk about reparations, I'm talking about it in the broad sense. So I'm talking about making amends, repairing damage. And there are many, many ways that one might do that. So in terms of the massacre here in 1921, there was a lawsuit that failed back in 2003, a federal lawsuit. But there's another lawsuit pending in state court now seeking reparations for certain identified survivors and descendants, monetary reparations for, for individuals. That's one way to look at reparations. But think of reparations as, let's say, arrows in a quiver. That's one arrow. There are many other arrows, which include investments of various types in targeted communities. Here in Tulsa, it might be investments in mentorship programs particularly for black youth or investments in opportunities for black entrepreneurs to grow and expand. That might be a form of reparations. It might be investments in facilities like I've just described, Greenwood Rising, this history center, because that helps the whole community understand its history and the legacy of that history, which is foundational if we're ever going to in a serious way, discuss and dialogue around how we move forward together. Yeah. One thing that really strikes me about some of the ways of reconciling that you've laid out, teaching teachers how to teach this, the historical center, is that it really puts emphasis on the fact that this is a process, that reconciliation doesn't happen and that it's over. It has to happen over time. And I think it feels like that's really important to mention on the eve of the centennial, because I sometimes feel like we are right now. Everybody will talk about or a lot of places will do something to honor the 100 years since the Tulsa race massacre. But then the day after the centennial, it's sort of like everyone goes back to their regular scheduled programming. And I think the programs you set out it seem to make a point that there is a life to this reconciliation process after May 31st. Is that your intention? Yeah, so I think what you said is absolutely true. But I would say this to that, and that is, and I, I don't mean to be personal, I'm going to use the term you. Oh, no, please. You meaning media. Yes. So what you do 
after the centennial doesn't really matter to me. What matters is what the people in this community do. So when we created the 1921 Tulsa Rice Massacre Centennial Commission back in 2015, it was never the intention that we are working toward doing some events for a particular day. We're doing some projects for the long haul. It just so happens that it's convenient to attract people like you to have this particular moment in time. And hopefully people like you will come to the community and highlight the long-term projects like Greenwood Rising, curriculum reform, and other things that we're doing. Yeah, and I think also moments like these are an opportunity to make sure that the nation is remembering that this has pulled today, that there are reverberations today. But yes, absolutely. Supporting the local community, healing the local community is a huge piece of this. Well, Hannibal, thank you so much for joining us. This was really meaningful. You are such an expert in the field, and it is an honor to get to talk to you. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.